Hi there. Welcome to New Frontiers Church weekly message series. Thanks for joining us today. This is the second message in our short series on the book of Esther. Last week, Ian explained that while God is never mentioned at any point in the book of Esther, his fingerprints are all over it. It is clear throughout the book that God is directing and guiding men's affairs and circumstances, even the bad ones, behind the scenes, such that they ultimately end up where he intended. But we don't just see God guiding the circumstances behind the scenes. We also see him using them to reveal the true heart attitudes and values of the characters in the story. Their responses to the circumstances they find themselves in expose the underlying state of their hearts. And in many cases, it's not a pretty picture. Today, we're going to take a look at a part of the story of Esther that is tempting to rush over to get to what we might think are the more relevant elements of the drama. But I don't want to do that because it presents in humorous but intensely dark parody the horrible consequences of our fallen human nature to misuse power for our own gain. And what a contrast that is to the model of redeemed life we see in Jesus and his kingdom. Let's take a look at the first chapter of Esther. I've summarized a bit of the story for time. These events happened in the days of King Xerxes, whose kingdom stretched from India to Ethiopia. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. He invited all the military officers of Persia and Media, as well as the princes and nobles of the provinces. The celebration lasted for 180 days, a tremendous display of the opulent wealth of his empire. Then the king gave a command for a banquet for all the people, from the greatest to the least who lived in the capital city. It lasted for seven days and it was held in the courtyard of the palace garden. The courtyard was beautifully decorated with white cotton curtains and blue hangings. Gold and silver couches stood on a mosaic pavement of marble, mother of pearl and of other costly stones. Drinks were served in gold goblets and there was an abundance of royal wine reflecting the king's generosity. The king instructed all his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. At the same time, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women. On the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was in high spirits because of the wine, he told the seven eunuchs who attended him to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty because she was a very beautiful woman. But when they conveyed the king's order to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. This made the king furious and he burned with anger. He immediately consulted with his wise advisors who knew all the Persian laws and customs, for he always asked for their advice. What must be done to Queen Vashti, the king demanded. What penalty does the law provide for a queen who refuses to obey the king's orders properly sent through his eunuchs? Hmm. His advisers replied, 
Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also every noble and citizen throughout your empire. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they learn that Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the king. Before this day is out, the wives of all the king's nobles throughout Persia and Media will hear what the queen did and will start treating their husbands the same way. There will be no end to their contempt and anger. So if it pleases the king, we suggest that you issue a written decree, a law of the Persians and Medes that cannot be revoked. It should order that Queen Vashti be forever banished from the presence of King Xerxes, and the king should choose another queen more worthy than she. When this decree is published throughout the king's vast empire, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, will receive proper respect from their wives. The king and his nobles thought this made good sense, so he followed his advisor's counsel. He sent letters across the empire to each province in its own language, proclaiming that every man should be the ruler of his own home and should say whatever he pleases. There's something about peering into the lives of the rich and famous that is hard to resist for most of us. Social media has given us an almost real-time window into their exotic lives and lavish homes. The software engineers making money from our online behavior know that we, we can't look away. Algorithms encourage us to keep clicking and swiping, presenting us with a never-ending stream of pictures and stories we can only marvel at as we gawk at the power and privilege we see on our screens. Just as today's media influencers tell us way more than we need to know about the lives of politicians, sports champions and movie superstars, so ancient authors told tales of kings and queens. Our fascination with the powerful and the famous is nothing new. The book of Esther opens with a story that could be an Instagram reel, if it was told today, of an overwhelmingly extravagant banquet in the court of King Xerxes. The anonymous Hebrew author of Esther writes his story something in the style of an expository journalist embedded in the Persian court the word plays he uses may be difficult for us to appreciate, but they would have made immediate sense to the ancient Jewish readers. His style is ironic and hyperbolic, and it reveals much about the nature of the pagan empire. Commentators believe he was parodying the Persian empire in order to expose Xerxes and his minions weaknesses and their miserable failures of leadership when compared to the superior standards of Jewish wisdom. It's no coincidence that Esther is the most read of all the Hebrew Bible books in the Jewish community, especially around the celebration of Purim, even today. But there's so much more on display here. As I mentioned in the introduction, if we examine the nature of the characters our author is parodying in the story, we can also see in Xerxes and his kingdom rule a picture of our natural fallen human disposition to misuse power for our own gain. And what a contrast it reveals compared to the model of redeemed life and the use of power we see in Jesus 
and his kingdom. In just this opening chapter of Esther, we're treated to a humorous, wildly exaggerated parody that exposes elements of the very worst of human nature. Let me fill in some of the historic details that will help us understand what I'm talking about. Xerxes was the ruler of the Persian Empire at its territorial peak in the 4th century BC. Thanks mostly to his father Darius, he ruled over a vast tract of land from India to Ethiopia, and after three years of rule, he seemed pretty secure on his throne. But it was not enough. He wanted more. Historians tell us that shortly after the events of the Book of Esther, Xerxes made two disastrous attempts to invade and conquer Greece, and he was thoroughly humiliated in defeat. Commentators believe the party was a cynical ruse to win favour with the military and aristocratic leaders he needed to support his campaign to conquer Greece. The opulent palace location, the furnishings and the sheer length of time they spent partying were all attempts by Xerxes to gain their support. His message to the military commanders, the nobles and the people was, look at me! I'm the one worthy of respect and adulation. I hold all the power. I can do whatever I want to whomever I want. So you need to follow me. But no surprise, he pushed it too far and it backfired spectacularly. Drunk on self-adulation and wine, Xerxes demanded that his greatest possession and treasure, his wife, Queen Vashti, appeared in her crown before his drunken all-male celebrities and minions so they could leer and gawk at her beauty. You can only imagine how much Vashti's refusal must have shaken the palace and brought all the celebrations to a premature end. In his commentary on Esther, Timothy Laniac put it like this, after his unprecedented display of wealth and power, Vashti ruined at one stroke the effect of the whole ostentatious exhibition. The king's honour, so thoroughly reinforced during his lengthy banquet, was brought into contempt because a simple request was denied. Xerxes' celebration of his control over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Ethiopia, paled when he could not demonstrate control over the will of one woman. Go Vashti! The reaction of the king and his court to Vashti's refusal to be disrespected and objectified was so excessive. Given the dominance of men in the Persian Empire, the officials' estimation of the scale of Vashti's crime was almost comical in its exaggeration. Bringing the full weight of the bureaucratic mechanism to bear, Vashti's defiance was erased and any residual traces of insubordination by other women in the kingdom who might be tempted to resist the demands of their husbands were snuffed out. Talk about cancel culture. An irrevocable decree was issued, translated into every language spoken in the, in the province, proclaiming that every man should be the absolute ruler in his home and demanding that they be honored. This can only have been ridiculous paranoia by Xerxes and his officials. They were so afraid of women that they went to absurd lengths to ensure everyone in the empire would do what the culture already demanded anyway. 
I can't help but picture Xerxes as a kind of ancient Lord Farquhar figure, the ill-tempered, insecure, short in stature, but ruthless ruler in the movie Shrek. But what can we learn from this exaggerated parody of the behavior of Xerxes and his court? I think contrasting Xerxes and his court with Jesus and his people might help us to answer that question. We've heard all about Xerxes, now let's talk about Jesus. Jesus is our all-powerful king. The whole earth was created by his powerful word and his kingdom is expanding across the whole earth. The kingdoms of this world have a timer on them, but Jesus' rule and reign will continue to grow until every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he is Lord. He's also invited us to a banquet, the great wedding banquet of the King of Kings and his bride, the church. We're all invited and there's a special place for the marginalized, the poor and the afflicted. And this party isn't just for six months. It's the wedding supper of the lamb. It's the great celebration of the victory of the lamb over evil. It's the launch pad into everlasting life with God. It's the successful culmination of God's plan to redeem a pure and precious bride for his son. And it's already been irrevocably fixed in the calendar because of the work of Jesus on the cross. And that victory on the cross means it's not just a future hope. Jesus' kingdom is already here. When you turn to Jesus, you are supernaturally transformed out of the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of our God. The kingdom will be fully consummated when Jesus returns again, but it's already powerfully at work in the lives of his followers infiltrating the world, drawing more and more people out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We remain in the world, but we're no longer of it. He's made us part of his mission to reveal his kingdom to others. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we're new creations in Christ. We're now lights in the darkness that point others to him. We get to be vessels through whom God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Paul says we have the message of reconciliation. We are Christ's ambassadors. So if that's what we are now, what does that mean we should do? Well, this is where we can hook back to the contrast with Xerxes. Throughout his letters, Paul challenged his readers that if the kingdom is at work in their lives, it will result in the fruit of a changed life. We're being changed to be just like our King Jesus. So what's he like? Firstly, unlike Xerxes, Jesus doesn't lord his power over us. In fact, he does the opposite. He gives his power away by serving us. He laid aside his majesty for the sake of his people. As Paul put it in Philippians 2, Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Paul challenges us to live by the same spirit in the same way, through humility, valuing others above ourselves, doing nothing out of vain conceit or selfish ambition, looking out for the interests of others. 
This is the very opposite life that we see Xerxes living. Everything was about him. He demanded self-honor and praise. He needed to be in control. He went to outrageous lengths to show off his power, masking his insecurities and feeding his ego. Paul's challenge is not a command to beat us up because we haven't done enough for others. It's actually a natural consequence of our new position in Christ. We are completely secure in him. He really is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's standing at the right hand of God, advocating for us. We're secure in him. What an amazing place to be. We are fully taken care of. We don't have to worry about our lives. So we can live for others. We can model his attitude and look out for the interests of others. It's part of the fruit of our new lives. Secondly, our king doesn't oppress us or rule us by fear. Again, Jesus did the opposite. In contrast to Xerxes, Jesus came to free the oppressed. He came to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He doesn't treat us as minions to be used and abused at the whim of the master. He forgives us and sets us free from the chains of sin and oppression. He calls us his brothers and sisters and he lifts up the poor and the broken, the outcasts and the sinners. And he calls on us to do the same. We're to see others as precious image bearers of God, regardless of who they are or where they've come from. Jesus went out of his way to lift up the downtrodden and the abused. He deliberately hung out with those that the religious leaders of his time would have nothing to do with. Our story today vividly exposes the contrast to Jesus in the way Xerxes and his court treated women. Xerxes and by the look of things, many of the men in his kingdom had a real issue with women. The absurdity of the king's excessive reaction to Vashti's refusal to be objectified and leered at by his cohort of drunken friends just exposed their incredible insecurity and the tragic consequences for the women in the kingdom. There could not be a greater contrast between the attitude of Xerxes and Jesus towards women. In her new book, The Secular Creed, Rebecca McLaughlin said, if we could read the Gospels through first century eyes, Jesus' treatment of women would knock us to our knees. He trashed the ancient world's gender model, which considered men to be superior to women. Jesus elevated and honoured women, especially those considered to be sexual sinners and those deemed unclean. He lovingly restored them to their originally created position of equal standing as God's image bearers alongside men. The longest single dialogue of any individual with Jesus is recorded by John in chapter four of his gospel. It's the story of the conversation between Jesus and a woman he met at a well in Samaria. And to a first century Jew, it would have been outrageous. Not only was Jesus talking to a woman alone, but she was also living with a man she wasn't married to. And she was a hated Samaritan as well. 
It really didn't get much worse than that. Talk about addressing intersectionality. In this one conversation, Jesus exposed and condemned cultural, gender, and racial barriers. And this opened the door to reach the whole Samaritan town with the gospel. But the gospel didn't just transform the relationship between individual men and women. In Ephesians 5, Paul explains that marriage is a metaphor for the beautiful intimate relationship between Christ and the church. In doing this, he transformed the behavior expected of men towards their wives, overturning the structure of the prevailing Greco-Roman marriage relationship in which it was recognized that wives had obligations to their husbands, but not vice versa. In requiring the husband to give himself totally to his wife, just as Christ loved the church and lovingly sacrificed himself for her, Paul transformed the husband's function from master to servant, giving up his power and essentially equalizing their positions. What a challenge this is for us. I'm speaking to men and husbands listening to this now. We may try and dodge the issue by saying, of course, we're not misogynistic in the way Xerxes was, but are we really modeling Jesus in the way we treat our wives and female friends and colleagues? Are we honoring them, serving them, lifting them up and treating them as equals before God? Especially in our culture, which continues to place women in the position of Vashti. I was reading a news article just this morning about the huge problems in the school system right now of degrading sexual demands being made by middle school boys and girls addicted to online porn. We need to be exemplars in the way we treat women and especially our wives and daughters. We need to light the way for our culture. I've only had time today to touch on just a couple of the most significant differences we see in the use of power by King Xerxes and his court when contrasted to King Jesus and his people. As I think about our church family, I am so thankful to God for the fruit I see in so many lives being transformed by Jesus. Go church! We serve an all-powerful King who modeled for us the lives he calls us to lead in the power of his spirit as we are transformed into his likeness. This is the fruit of our salvation, and it's actually part of our mission to transform the world. As we go about our lives this week, let's keep Jesus front and center in our lives, challenged afresh by his call to live in the same way he lived. Let's be those that give away our power for the sake of others, humbly valuing others above ourselves. Let's proclaim good news to the poor and free the oppressed and the downtrodden wherever we may come across them. Let's treat everyone we encounter as precious image bearers of God, no matter who they are or where they've come from. Amen. Let's model Jesus in the way we treat our wives, daughters, female friends, and colleagues. Let's continue to be the model of a redeemed life to our world. Have a great week. God bless you.